This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am superstar Frank Morano. Uh, obviously, for a lot of the reasons we've been talking about, this weekend is a big sports weekend. There's one aspect of sports that uh, I do find interesting and noteworthy these days. So the baseball owners have approved the Oakland Athletics moving to Las Vegas. And uh, so it's going to happen um, it's not going to happen next season but within the next few years they're building a brand new stadium for them in Las Vegas publicly subsidized by the taxpayer and a lot of the fans in Oakland they are not happy about this they have a lot of things to be unhappy about and uh, there's a record $360 million budget deficit in that city. They're in no position to be uh, turning on the money spigot and building a private ball team, a lavish, publicly paid-for stadium. But a lot of people are concerned with this team moving from Oakland to Las Vegas that this may spell the end of working-class sports fans. That it used to be a common thing for people, not in big cities, but in suburbs, even in big cities to some extent, to be able to take a train or a bus to the ball game after work, pay $15 for a ticket, not a bad seat either, and be able to enjoy the game. The working man has long been a central figure in American sports, especially baseball, but really all American sports. They're attracted to the games as a diversion from the 9-to-5 grind that all of us deal with, or the 1-to-5 grind in some of our cases, and they view this as a more level playing field than other societal areas. And as professional sports began to expand west in the 1950s, and there's a very good article about this in the New York Times a few days ago by Billy Witz, but as professional sports began to expand westward in the 1950s, you had a couple of very interesting things happen. Oakland was anchored by shipbuilding, auto manufacturing, and a port. This became an obvious landing spot for professional sports teams. And within a decade, Oakland became home to the Raiders, which was a team in the American Football League at the time, the Athletics in baseball, and briefly the um, California Golden Seals in the NHL. I think the Warriors also were um, were in Oakland. But 
all the teams played at a complex that was centered on a vast asphalt lot flanked by a major freeway and a rail line. Soon, this lot is going to be vacant. It's not because Oakland has changed. It's still a working class town, albeit, you know, they still have much higher rate rents because of everything that's going on with California these days, but it's still very much a working class city. But the business calculus for these teams has evolved. Franchise revenue is now driven more by TV deals and sponsorships than ticket sales. And those prices, the ticket sales, even though they're not the primary generator of revenue for these teams, it's the TV deals, the ticket prices have skyrocketed. The transformation of sports into media products has, I think, done some very good things maybe making it more accessible internationally, maybe helping to build bridges to places like Japan or uh, London, wherever. But it really has relegated cities, which used to be integral to what these baseball teams, these football teams were all about, to backdrops. It's really relegated the fans to little more than, than props. And this point was driven home during the coronavirus pandemic when the games went on in vacant or mostly vacant stadiums. That would have been unthinkable 35 years ago, 40 years ago. The, the Bay Area in California is the 10th biggest market in America, for the 10th biggest media market. And if you think about it, according to the Nielsen Company, which measures our ratings and other, um, other television and radio stations ratings, the Las Vegas market is the 40th market, the 40th biggest market. So on the one hand, it wouldn't seem to make sense. Why would they leave the Bay Area, the 10th biggest media market, for the 40th biggest media market? But there's another factor at play here. Sports gambling. As these regional sports networks, which are a cash cow for sports teams, they've begun to teeter, and in some cases even collapse, Sports gambling is becoming, or maybe it's already become, I don't think it's the future, I think it's already happened. Sports gambling has become the golden goose for sports franchises. And it was not long ago that my friend Oscar Goodman, the former, uh, for the former mayor of Las Vegas, currently the first man in Las Vegas, did whatever he could to try to get a professional sports team in Las Vegas. And all the sports teams said the same thing. We don't want to come to Las Vegas because of the gambling. We're concerned about the impact of gambling on the sport. Now, they're not just willing to be okay with gambling. They're actively embracing the gambling. So, And Nevada has welcomed Internet gambling as well. California has not. Two measures, and you know me, I'm a big believer in direct democracy. I love when these measures get placed on the ballot. Two measures, one of which was supported by Major League Baseball, were trounced last year in what was the country's most expensive ballot campaign. More than $450 million raised by both sides. So the athletics want a new stadium. They've wanted one for decades under at least three different owners. They've tried to build a new ballpark in um, a bunch of different places. But building new stadiums in California is its own contact sport. 
because you have this incredibly high cost of labor, you have incredibly stringent environmental standards, and, uh, and this I agree with completely, the taxpayers don't want to subsidize these sports teams. The taxpayers have a tremendous aversion to subsidies for sports franchises. Now, it's not impossible. The Clippers were able to uh, get a new arena. But in Oakland, it just was not going to happen. So I'm sad for what this means for the future of sports. I think the working class sports fan has large, is largely now, once this move from Oakland to Vegas is complete, is largely going to be left out of the equation. I think it's a real shame. Nothing against Vegas. I love Vegas. But I think um, for people that, for a community that has supported sports team after sports team, and just because their politicians can't be bought off to uh, pay for, with taxpayer dollars, a new stadium, these fans get abandoned, I think it's just terrible. I think it is just awful. And unfortunately, this is not an isolated incident. This is the norm. This is the norm for uh, sports these days. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. You're welcome to comment on uh, absolutely anything that we have discussed thus far. Uh, Debbie Schlussel is going to join us in uh, about 15 minutes. And by the way, you know, I am going to ask Debbie about the Middle East. And if um, you fall on a certain side of the equation of the Middle East situation, I'm sure you're going to have a problem with some of the things that she said. But I, one of the things that I've tried to do since this war has been on is really showcase all points of view. Tree de Parsi obviously has a very different viewpoint than Jeffrey Lichtman. We've talked with um, people that I think are pretty objective analysts of the situation, people like Colonel Daniel Davis. Uh, we have talked with folks that are reporters that have actually lived in Israel and have a very interesting take on the situation. Uh, Isaac Saul comes immediately to mind. I'm trying to really do my best to showcase every possible viewpoint on this issue so that you have all the information, so that you're able to hear people's opinions and then make your own decision. And honestly, I am trying to ask everybody the most challenging questions that I can think of. I, again, I don't want to sound self-congratulatory, but I think the uh, coverage that our show has done on the Middle East, I'll hold that up to, I'll hold that up to any show in America, quite frankly. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on this or anything else. Uh, let me begin with uh, the OG Rick in New Jersey. Hello there, Rick. Yes, good morning, Frank. Good morning. Good morning. Um, <clears throat> you remember I was the one who uh, petitioned the court of Murano to get the FOMO pass instituted, right? Yes, congratulations on that, yes. Uh, well, thank you. One of the few successes in my life. Hmm. Anyway, uh... I would like to petition the court of Murano again to maybe institute a podcast pass because we'll be listening to the podcast and so many times I get frustrated because, oh, shoot, I could have, you know, I would have liked to chime in on that or I, I really would have liked to ask Frank more about that detail or something. And we can't because it's 24 hours later. I think, or I'd like you to give a 24-hour podcast pass. Only 24 hours, not way back, just from yesterday. If 
there's something that you heard on the podcast and you'd like to chime in, you can get a pass for that. You know what I'm saying? I think I do. It's not the worst idea that I've heard. Uh, the one, and, and maybe I'll get Matt Blaze's take on this as well, but um, the, the one thing that I would say is, with Ask Frank Anything, you have the opportunity in the first hour of the show on Friday to ask whatever you want, including about the podcasts. So I, I feel like you, you know. Oh, 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 that one, see, see that, well, Ask Frank Anything, you can only ask, while you're there, I can't ask you tomorrow about what you were talking about because I wasn't able to listen at that time live. You see what I'm saying? I, I hear you. I hear you. And, you know, it's not it's not a crazy thing. Uh, yeah, Matt Blaze, you want to think you, about it, please. Yeah, no, no, I will. I, I, I'll, I, I will absolutely think about it. Matt Blaze, do you want to weigh in on this at all? I, it's not it's not a crazy idea. I'm just trying to figure out how this would work in yeah, practice. Yeah, it, it, well, it, it, it's not a horrible idea, but here's the problem, and this happens all the time. When people ask a question about something from a day ago, there may be people that never heard that, so mm-hmm. they don't know what mm-hmm. you're talking about mm-hmm. when you ask uh, that question. Well, yeah, but you would when we ask that question again. Right, it, but they're not going to know. now be brought up again. You see what I'm saying? Matt? Right, but now you have to take the time to set up the entire context right, right. of the conversation. That's exactly uh, my it's a concern as well. Thing. Uh, and the other okay. thing that I would add, Rick, and, uh, and thanks uh, for the call, Rick. I, I, I appreciate it. Um, the other thing that I would add is, uh, you know, I've been trying to do more of these Facebook videos on the weekend, um, Saturday and, uh, you know, Sunday. And people can, in those, in those Facebook videos, they can uh, also ask whatever they want, including if it's material that's been covered on the, uh, on the podcast. But uh, I appreciate the call, Rick. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Hello, Frank. Uh, You know, I'd rather not have to comment on this, but I feel a little bit compelled to, you know, uh, this whole Robin Williams thing, when he passed away, I felt that he he was mad at that time. He had driven himself mad with with self-revelry. In a sense, he, he he became so enamored of himself that he actually he actually drove himself mad, and he was not funny at the end. He would just stand up, and he think he thought he could instantaneously pull off, um, you know, a comic, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, a, a comic triumph, and in, in a second, and that was a symptom of his madness. I am a little um, skeptical whether he really had Parkinson's. I don't want to say he didn't. He might have. But if he did, I view it as some kind of divine punishment going directly to his um, self-consumed uh, uh, state. But this guy well, clearly... Wait, and, wait, wait, yeah. wait. Well, I, I'll let you weigh in on uh, the fellow that I just interviewed. But, um, you know, there was an autopsy, and it found, it did found, found, find Lewy body disease. I mean, are you questioning the, the autopsy results? No, I, I, I'm telling you, I just was scared. I thought maybe they filled in a reason for his demise uh, because he clearly seemed to me to have been mad. And this is a, in, in the rare sense of the word, somebody who actually drove himself mad with his overacting. That guy used the term overacting. And I think he had in Robert Williams had that affliction. And it, and this guy caught it maybe from Robin Williams, and you see he's still going on with it. So this guy may have driven himself mad, also. 
Well, we will- you know, uh, look, I'm not a psychologist, obviously. I, um, I, you know, I can't say you're wrong. Uh, you know, it's a matter of uh, a matter of opinion. It could certainly be the case. You might be right. I, uh, the one thing that I want to dispel, though, is any notion that Robin Williams didn't have Louis body. And it's a very serious disease, uh, and I'm aware of it. My, my Uncle Carmine, who I was quite close to, had uh, both uh, had Parkinson's with Louis body. And uh, I, honestly, to see a guy that was not only an incredible athlete, including late in his life, he was a better softball player at, uh, at 70 than I've been at any age. But um, to see a guy that uh, was an incredible athlete and had an incredible mind, not just when it came to sports, but politics, civic affairs, uh, family matters, and a guy that uh, did everything he was supposed to do, took care of himself, didn't drink, didn't smoke, uh, exercised regularly, to see his both his body and his mind really become a, a shell of what it was uh, for most of his life, it's the saddest thing in the world. So uh, I, uh, I've got a lot of a lot of sympathy for the Williams family, which is why I asked that question to uh, Roger. If um, you know, if he, he views this as exploitive at all, and I, again, I'm not surprised that I'm not the first person to ask that question. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Richard is in Washington. Hello there, Richard. Hey, how's it going, Frank? Um, I uh, I don't know the, this uh, that interview recently with about Robin Williams um, just kind of uh, made me think a lot about and I'm no expert, but um, it at 60 years old, it's been my observation that. Some of the brightest stars uh, have tortured souls. Does that make sense? I mean, it does. It does. There's um, a very good documentary on uh, Netflix about Andy Kaufman and Jim Carrey and sort of the. Actually, I didn't think about this, but it sort of reminds me of the transformation that Roger Cabler underwent to play Robin Williams. But this film, and you can watch it, it's called Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond. This film chronicles uh, Jim Carrey's transformation into Andy Kaufman. And in watching that film, I uh, I came away. I, I had long believed that Andy Kaufman had some dealing had some demons that he was dealing with through his performance yeah. and elsewhere. And I, in watching that film, I came to believe that uh, Jim Carrey does as well. Uh, so I think I think you know. Look, some people are very well adjusted. I think uh, Jerry Seinfeld, f- from everything that all of his uh, compatriots say about him, is a relatively normal person, in spite of the fact that he's pretty funny. Right. But uh, I think you're right. I think uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people, a lot of performers, not just comedians, but musicians, a lot of radio people as well. Quite frankly, they do tend to be a kind of, as you termed it, a, a tortured soul. Yeah. And I have another question, um, real quick. Uh, do you and Sliwa ever leave that building, um, or do you have a, <laughs> or do you have a? That's very funny, a Richard. 
That's very funny. Uh, you know, uh, I can't speak for Curtis. I'm actually out of town right now. I'm actually doing the show from a hotel lobby. That's why if you hear a little bit of an echo, uh, that's why. But hopefully it sounds pretty decent. But, um, <laughs> you, know, you know, look, um, I was listening to a few months ago, Howard Stern, and he was mocking, not mocking, but he was talking about a radio talk show host or a DJ that had made the decision to retire. And Howard said, um, you know, whenever one of these radio guys retires, I always think, what do you, this is him saying it, not me. I always think, what are you doing? All you're doing is talking. Are you really just going to stop talking? And if you're going to talk in real life, why don't you just do it into a microphone? And then Howard says, this is why I end up never retiring because, you know, I'm going to talk. If I'm going to talk, I may as well talk into a microphone and get paid. Um, this job it is not a job. I mean, this is the greatest blessing that I could ever hope for. Um, my, you know, a relative of mine uh, said to me within the last 24 hours, actually two relatives of mine, different sides of the family, they both said, in essence, oh, isn't that crummy? You have to work on Thanksgiving. And I said to both of them in words or substance that, you know, I've worked my whole life in order to be on the radio, what am I going to do, cry when they want me to be on the radio? This is a treat. This is an incredible amount of fun to be able to express whatever thoughts I have with you, to be able to try my hand at uh, entertaining you, to be able to think of the most interesting people in the world and ask them if they want to have a conversation with me. Uh, I, you know, you, on Thanksgiving, you should obviously you should try and do it always, but especially on Thanksgiving, you kind of take uh, stock of what your blessings are and what you're grateful for. And uh, th this is not a chore at all. Is it nice to have a day off once in a while? Sure. But this is just uh, an incredible blessing. So uh, whether it's me or whether it's Curtis or anybody else that does this, uh, my friend Bernard McGurk used to tell me at the end of the day, we're not digging ditches and we're not doing brain surgery. I mean, we're sitting here pontificating about Dolly Parton and world affairs and all sorts of other things. But it is what it is. I didn't mean to go off on a tangent there. Oh, so that woman that I mentioned earlier in the program who asked to borrow my laptop charger, I'm making small talk with her. I said, oh, where are you going to school? She said, Liberty University. I said, oh, boy, lawsuit with uh, Jerry Falwell Jr is really something, isn't it? And she hadn't heard about it. She's, I guess, just attending online. And I guess Liberty University's big into the online scholarship. I'll see, uh, maybe I can get an online degree from there or two. I don't know if I have the time or the money, but something worth considering. 800-848-9222. Steve is in Manhattan. I hope you had a nice Thanksgiving, Steve. On Thanksgiving, anybody who watched three straight football games, your brain is now in a vegetative state. <laughs> and, uh, yes, I did, and I hope you did. You definitely did, because you, you have to be at any dinner party with the family. You have to be the master of ceremonies. I, I, without question, you have to be the, the talk of the town in the house there. And you're all right. You do a job where it really is you, you love your job, and it's not a job when you love it. And uh, most people would love to have a job where you just talk and uh, get exactly. paid for it. Exactly. And, uh, we can't all be off-the-book right, surgeons like you. Yeah, right. But then again, you know, off-the-books is off-the-books. Mm -hmm. But um, the thing is, 
I usually don't use cliches, but let's not ignore the 10,000-pound elephant in the room when it comes to Oakland. Oakland is a city that, that's ravaged with crime. And a lot of people don't want to go to the games because they don't want to go into that city and deal with that kind of a situation there. And I, but throughout history, baseball teams, all kinds of franchises have always moved. Uh, in the early 1900s, a lot of the uh, ballparks were built on city blocks, obviously, because there was trains or buses, like you mentioned before, and people could get to those places. And as the teams moved out west and everything was they had a ton of land they kept giant ballparks with with big uh, parking lots and that's how it's changed but teams will always move they'll go with them with a pot of gold is now let me just say one thing now this is this is thanksgiving weekend we've had a lot of fun we started off with the kennedy assassination now you're in a hotel earlier in the week you were on the grassy knoll doing the show remote locations you know what and years ago at one time they couldn't cut the call off, off from the remote location. And that was a good time to prank the show. Right. You, they, the people in the, who were doing the show, unless the guy in the studio went to the, you know, went to the snack bar or something, there'd be nobody to cut it off. That happened a few times with me. But let's lighten it up a little bit now. In two years, we know Curtis is going to be running for mayor, right? And he's going to travel out. I don't know how he gets there, by ferry or bus or something to Staten Island, and he's going to be begging the Italian-Americans for their votes. Meanwhile, everybody knows that Curtis hates Italian-Americans, but that's the economy of politics, folks. Well, I mean, uh, I appreciate the perspective, Steve, but uh, that's not true at all. First of all, uh, Curtis is, uh, a, a, you know, of half Italian descent. He's Italian and Polish. Um, I mean, he's American, but his forefathers were from uh, Poland and, and Italy. And he's very proud of the uh, Italian side of his family, his mom, Francis, especially. I heard him talk about his uh, father, uh, his grandfather, Fidel Bianchino, more times than I can count. And, you know, the way that he goes out of his way almost to insert an Italian word into his uh, commentaries from time to time, I think is just proof that he has no animus towards the um, the Italian community at all. I think, quite frankly, it's a ridiculous thing to say. All right, before we get to Debbie Schlossel, let me just say hello to Joe in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hi, Joe. Hi, how are you? I'm from Stollerwood, Pennsylvania, where it was Charlie Jones from the Partridge family who was born... And baseball, my uncle was a baseball park announcer for the old Washington Senators. And he married my aunt in the Bahama Islands in a hotel. When he retired, he went back and bought the hotel. His name was Ted Rogers from the Washington Senators. And uh, I'm a civilian nurse. Are you going to eat some halushki? You know what that is in Pennsylvania, cabbage and noodles? You're going over there to Bethlehem. Bethlehem. That's where the, bla the blast furnace was, the biggest furnace for the meals, steel mills back in. Anyways... My name is James Package, and I have the keys to the news media in Pittsburgh. All right. Uh, that gentleman has called before. And pretty quickly, the call delves into some aspect of his mental illness or uh, something sexual. Or... I, I couldn't even make out what he was saying there. Maybe it's my own fatigue from not having slept in two days, but I couldn't make out at all what he was saying. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Uh, the lovely and spirited Debbie Schlossel joins us straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Here comes the weekend indeed, and uh, what a weekend it is and will be. Um, I'm just seeing now that uh, William Shatner has extended Cyber Monday and Black Friday deals to anything at WilliamShatnerStore.com. So for those of you that are thinking about what Christmas gift to get me, what should you get the Frankster, the man who has everything and has no room for anything, anything from the William Shatner store, I think that's delightful. Just use that promo code uh, Cyber Monday 2023, WilliamShatnerStore.com. I always enjoy uh, talking with Debbie Schlussel because we have some guests on this uh, program that talk about the law, some who talk about domestic politics, some who talk about world affairs, and others who talk about pop culture. Debbie Schlussel is probably the only the only person that brings the same level of passion and gusto to all and expertise to all of those areas and uh, very very pleased and flattered that uh, on the day after a major holiday just a few hours removed from a major holiday she's kind enough to get up early for us debbie happy thanksgiving uh, what did you end up doing for the holiday thank you frank happy thanksgiving you know what i just used it to sleep in and relax and I guess they call it veg out and just clean up a few things. You know, I just needed some time off with not having to worry about court or, or business or any taking calls from people. And it was nice to have a day free of all that. Good for you. That's great. Also, um, let me publicly apologize uh, to you because uh, I made some remarks that uh, some people thought were uh, a bit disrespectful to you uh, when I was talking about uh, a previous discussion we'd had about the Middle East. And, uh, you know, I can absolutely see how it might have come across that way. And, uh, you know, we, obviously we know each other a long time and uh, I really appreciate your contributions to this show. And I would never want to say anything that uh, could even be perceived as disrespectful, even though I didn't mean it that way, honestly. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that, and I hope you had a great Thanksgiving as well. Happy, so, happy post-Thanksgiving. Yeah, thank, thank you. Um, all right, I uh, want to pick your brain on a few items in the news uh, before getting your take on what movies people may want to see uh, this weekend if uh, there's poor weather, which there may be in wide swaths of the country. Let me begin with the presidential race. Early on, you were uh, all about DeSantis. You um, praised some of President Trump's policy accomplishments, but you had some concerns on both a stylistic and a substantive point of view. You've said in our previous conversations that you're not going to vote for Trump this time around. He seems to be sort of running up a pretty wide lead in the 
Republican corner of the world. And it seems like a lot of the anti-Trump Republicans, both in the donor class and among the voters, they seem to be settling on Nikki Haley rather than Ron DeSantis as the Trump alternative. How do you view the Republican presidential primary race now? And what's your thinking about who you might support? Well, I am still supporting Ron DeSantis, and you are right that I, I did say I, I – I, listen, the dinner with Nazis was the final straw for me, the Kanye Nick Fuentes dinner, but there's just been so much. Um, and so I, I will never vote for Joe Biden or the Democrats, of course, um, and if Trump is the nominee, I'll just throw my vote away and I will vote Libertarian, um, which will never – the person will never win. Or I wouldn't vote for them either because I have my problem with libertarians as well. Um, I, you know what? Yes, Nikki Haley is doing better in New Hampshire, but in Iowa, Ron DeSantis is getting a lot of the important endorsements. He's gotten the governor. He has a lot of the important um, evangelical leaders there, and we will see. I mean, there has not been a single primary yet. I am not a huge fan of Nikki Haley. I don't like a lot of the things she's done. I I feel like she's really a flip-flopper. I think Ron DeSantis has done great things. He's been very consistent. Um, and, and I think he'll do great things as president. And I think he can still pull this thing out. Oh, yes, really? you're right. Yeah, yes, you're right that um, Trump is far ahead of both of them, but... Nikki Haley has the momentum right now in in New Hampshire and also um, with a lot of the Republican donor class. But don't forget, John McCain was way behind everyone, and then he became the nominee. Right. Um, Kerry also. Kerry also. Right. And so, you know, and remember, Howard Dean won Iowa, right? If I'm not, cor- well, uh, I think he finished third, uh, but he was projected to win uh, Iowa, and he—that's when he, um, you know, he, he, yeah, he Kerry ended up winning Iowa. But but your point's well taken. Uh, Kerry had a big, uh, you know, people were writing his political obituary, and then he had a campaign shake off, a shake up, and then uh, and then came back and won the nomination. You're you're right. So you you still see a scenario in which uh, DeSantis might be able to pull it out. He might be able to. And listen, I remember when Herman Cain was the leading Republican nominee. So uh, anything can change and we shall see. I am definitely not giving up hope. Anything. The the thing really hasn't started yet. But yes, it does look like we are headed for a rematch, which I don't think anybody wants. I do. My fear is that if Trump is the nominee, there are a lot of Republicans who voted for him. I voted for him three times in the primary in Michigan and then twice in the general. And I was proud to do so. Um, my concern is that there are people like me that voted for him. And because I've talked to a lot of them, it's anecdotal, but there are a lot of them that won't vote for him in the general. And that what will happen is it's not just going to be Trump losing on top, but I think it'll go all the way down the ballot mm-hmm. and it will really hurt Republicans. And that's along with, the Democrats using abortion again, unfortunately. Let me ask you about the situation in the Middle East. You know, we're just a couple of hours away from uh, the beginning of this uh, hostage release and uh, this uh, cessation of hostilities in in Gaza. I'm going to take a wild guess here and 
assume that you're not crazy about this deal that was negotiated for Palestinian prisoners in exchange for Israeli hostages. Exactly. Not at all. I think it's a ridiculous deal. I think Israel has set itself up for these horrible lopsided deals because over the years, they've traded thousands of prisoners for a, a dead body or two and so on. And we don't even know if these hostages are alive. Um, we don't know in what condition they are. We know one one of the hostages, who's actually the son of one of my friends from grad school, uh, Hirsch Goldberg, Poland, um, we know that his arm was shot off. Um, you know, we don't know if he bled out or if he was taken to the hospital. We know that a couple of bodies of hostages were found outside that Al-Shifa hospital. You know, we don't know what kind of surgery, if they got any, was happened with them, if it was barbaric, just like the treatment was before. I think that giving away 300, because the story is it's 150, mm -hmm. but a lot of the stuff I've read in Hebrew media and Israeli media says it's actually up to 300 that they are going to release for the initial 50 hostages. Some of these people are actually, they are killers. They are attempted killers. They just didn't succeed. One of them is a woman, um, Mara, I can't remember her last name, but she, um, her mother says, oh, she was only a teenager. She's a nice, sweet girl. Well, this nice, sweet girl who was only a teenager stabbed um, an Israeli border patrol guard and tried to kill her. Um, these are attempted killers. They're people who stabbed people. They're attempted homicide bombers, suicide bombers. They're people who are going to do this again. As we, as many people know from the media reports, Yahya Sinwar, the uh, Hamas leader in Gaza who planned these attacks, spent 22 years in an Israeli jail because he also was an attempted uh, terrorist. He is a terrorist. He was trying to plan mass murders um, and took place in a plot. He um, refused. He was in one of these mass prisoner releases. And his dentist, whose nephew is now among the hostages, but this Israeli dentist who treated him in the Israeli jail, said that he um, refused to sign. They had a a document they wanted all these released prisoners to sign, which they're all lie anyway. So if they would have signed, it wouldn't mean anything. But they refused even to sign that they would no longer take part in terrorist attacks against Israel. This is a man who had a brain tumor. Israel mm -hmm. operated on him and saved his life. Um, this is the guy that planned all of this. So these are the kinds of people that they're releasing. They're not you know, teenagers and children and women, they're, they're, they're killers and would be killers and, and hope to be killers. And this is just going to make Israel and Jews all over the world target again. If Israel would stay, I understand they have this policy. They won't leave anyone behind, even dead bodies. And they are willing to make these deals, but by willing to do that, they just make everybody a target more for the future. And, you know, he said that Yahya Sinwar, that Yahya Sinwar, he said that he's going to do this again and again and again, and there are going to be more September or October seventh.
Uh, Debbie, I have a lot of questions for you uh, about the Middle East situation, but uh, I want to talk movies with you because a lot of folks are going to enjoy a three-day weekend with you. So uh, you got to come back, and we'll we'll continue the Middle East discussion. Let me ask you about a, a horror film that uh, that's gotten a lot of attention because of the holiday that it's named for, Thanksgiving. I know you enjoy yeah. a good horror movie from time to time. Is this a good horror movie? So I do enjoy a good horror movie, but I hated this movie, and I'll tell you why. It was so, it's Eli Roth directed it, which I didn't know at the time I went to see it at the screening. Um, and Eli Roth is known for the hostile movies and and for his very, very explicit graphic gore. And this movie was so gross and so gory. And I watch a lot of these horror movies and I'm not afraid of a little blood or even a good degree of blood, but this was so gross and so graphic and so disgusting. It was like it was torture porn and killing mm. porn. And I, I had my hands over my face for like a third of the movie. It was so gross. I just couldn't watch. And also, the beginning of the movie shows this scene on Black Friday where everybody from a year ago, where everybody goes to the store and they all break into the store and people are injured very badly and people are are killed in the stampede and things like that. It just seemed to me a little out of touch with reality. Black Friday is over. Nobody's waiting in line except right. a few crazies right. at Best Buy. Right. You know, we're all shopping online. I used to be one of those people waiting in line stupidly. Don't ask me why. Nothing was worth it. Um, and I was, you know, calm and not violent like the people in this movie. But nobody even does that anymore. So none of the stuff at the beginning of the movie would happen. But also the other thing is a good mystery, a good thriller gives you some hint of who did it and why. This movie gives you no hint at all. Hmm. Um, one last thing. It stars Patrick uh, Dempsey. He's the only big name in this movie. And then it's got... Um, one of the people that has like a ton of followers on TikTok, but isn't really an actress. Um, and anyway, Patrick Dempsey was sat at my table at my cousin's wedding. Oh. And not only was he, he was recently named the uh, sexiest man alive. Not only was he not even the sexiest man at the wedding, he was not even the sexiest person at my table. <laughs> Ryan Phillippe was at my table also. You, so, who, 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 who was at your table also? Ryan Phillippe. Oh, oh, gee, used to be a bigger funny. name. No, no, no. I know. No, I just didn't hear you. I certainly know Ryan Phillippe. I loved him on uh, Boston Legal, where he played uh, Donnie Crane. Hey, um, you didn't see Napoleon, though, did you? Everyone's talking about the length of this film, Napoleon. Did you see it? I did see it. Oh, you know, I forgot to add that to our list. Sorry about that. Oh, so I give me did your take. See it. So it's way too long. It's like two and a half hours. It felt like five and a half hours. They told us it was going to be three and a half hours when we went to the screening. And it really felt like it was much longer even than that when it was only two and a half only. Um, It's very repetitive. I did not care for the casting. I think Joaquin Phoenix really sounded and seemed like a guy from 2023 pretending to be Napoleon. (laughs) A lot of this stuff was really stupid, like the sex scenes where he's making all these weird noises to let his uh, wife, Josephine, know that he wants to have sex. He's making these, like, way over-the-top noises going, mmm, and, and stamping his feet. I just took that away from the whole you. story. Yeah. Right. And it just, it just wasn't 
to me very interesting. I thought it was boring, and who cares? Whereas Napoleon's story was very interesting, and I felt they made it less so. I know sometimes you've had an issue with things being historically inaccurate in different films. As best you could tell, even if it was boring, was the history at least up to par? You know, I mean, it did not seem very different from what I read and what I learned Mm -hmm. in history, history in class and so on. Um, and the various wars that he took people to and the, the deaths and things like that. But I don't know because I'm not a really much of a scholar of Napoleon. Gotcha. Only, you know, basic stuff that I learned about him. Gotcha. But it seemed uh, like it must have been correct. All right. Well, that's a point in its favor, I suppose, but not worth uh, the, that length of time. I'm going to be with uh, a whole bunch of uh, children at a two-year-old birthday party on Saturday, and I'm sure a lot of them are going to be uh, begging their uh, parents to take them to see this new Disney film, Wish. It's a musical fantasy film. I think it's animated. Uh, what, what's the deal with Wish? Is it worth seeing? So it is animated. I didn't care for it. I was so underwhelmed. I think it was one of the least spectacular animated Disney films I've ever seen, if not the. The story was was ridiculously stupid and nonsensical. Um, And it just seemed like they are tried so hard to have a multicultural movie that they didn't try hard at all on what the story and the plot was. And the animation seemed to me like it's like 1980 or 90. It mm. wasn't fabulous or spectacular like you usually will see in a Disney movie. Usually they have a magical story and the the um, multicultural and diversity stuff won't bother me because the story will make up for it. It didn't bother me in this. It just showed me that that's all they cared about for the movie. And I think parents will be bored to tears. I was bored. Usually when I see these Disney movies, the the parents and the kids will both love it. I didn't find this to have the magic, and we'll see how well it does in the movies. I, I I was underwhelmed. There were so many better movies that I've seen. What's um what's Saltburn about? Oh my god, this movie was so weird. It reminded me of um the talented Mr. Ripley movie. Uh, Remember yeah. the Matt Damon movie? Yeah, I wasn't crazy minus, about that one. Minus the talent of Matt Damon and the other people that were in this movie, there were uh, that movie with the addition of a lot of gross things. Basically, it's this guy that's from a middle class working to middle class family and he goes to uh, Oxford and he's on a scholarship and he meets this guy that he uh, has a man crush on and that guy is from a very wealthy family his parents are lo- a lord and a lady they're noble and they live in this castle that I think was Henry the uh castle something like that and he inveigles his way into the life he was, he was a nerd on scholarship but he inveigles his way into the life of this rich guy and he the rich guy becomes taken with him and brings him home for the winter break and it's just so creepy and mm. weird but it's, it's there's a there's just a lot of weirdness that's to me very offensive and gross Oof. and it's aimed for example there's a scene where the the rich guy takes a bath in the bathtub and then after he's done and the water is almost drained out this weird creepy 
protagonist of sorts licks the bathtub and oh, drinks. Geez. The, it's so gross and disgusting, and I'm not even telling you all I, of the grossness. I appreciate I can't that. It on family radio. Hey, um, thank you, Debbie. I have to run. Um, but uh, is there anything this weekend that's worth seeing? Is there a quick recommendation yes. you can give to people? Yes. The Holdovers is a great movie. It's a classic adult, grown-up, nice movie that reminds me of Dead Poets Society. It takes place in 1970. Very good with Paul Giamatti. You can never lose with him. Um, I also thought that Dream Scenario starring Nicolas Cage, it turns out to be too weird and too hmm. disturbing. But it's like a Twilight Zone episode of a guy who suddenly appears in all of these people's dreams right. around the world beyond his control. I enjoyed uh, both of those. Debbie, uh, thanks very much for joining me. Have a great weekend. Let's talk soon. Thank you. If you want to be heard for 15 seconds, you can do so. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. The other side at midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Mike. Morning, Frank. Being conjoined with your wife was the perfect answer on Ask Frank. You could be as messy as you want to be, and she'd be right there to clean up after you. Frank. Rocco. Good morning, Frank. God bless Israel. Seems like there's a lot of bad movies out there. Let's look at the classics. They're there. A wonderful life. Happy birthday, Angelo. Joe. All right. Well, on that note, we'll end it there. Have a great weekend, everybody. I'll be back Monday, God willing. Frank Morano. Good day.